Welcome to the podcast, Eavesdropping on Arthurians, a podcast that records some of the world's top Arthurians chatting about Arthurian texts. Imagine you're at an Arthurian conference, and after a day of listening to papers on all things Arthurian, you've all gone to the pub. So, order a pint of ale, pull up a stool, and settle in to listen to two scholars talk about their favorite books. Our first chat will be with Dr. Shan Eckerd. Dr. Eckerd is a professor of English at the University of British Columbia, who has published extensively on Arthurian literature, including two books on the Latin tradition. She has also taught many courses on Arthur for several years, and has some very useful web pages on the earliest Arthurian texts. She took me back to the misty beginnings of the story of Arthur in the earliest Latin and Welsh texts and stories. So welcome, Sean. Thank you. Good to be here. Let's start with the basics. I speak English. I went to Wales once when I was nine, and we were gobsmacked by the size of the signs on which they had <laughs> to switch the, squish the place names. And so can you, my understanding is that English speakers can make most of the sounds of Welsh once they learn kind of what correlates with what spellings except for the evil kind of double L sound. The, the um, double, is that correct? More or less. I mean, the, okay. the double L, and I can teach you how to make that sound in a sec. Okay. Some of the vowels, um, so for instance, my name's not really Sean, which okay. is how most English speakers uh, say it. It's Sean. Sean, okay. Which is, so a, little... which is a vowel that North American English speakers don't make, but a right. colleague of mine who's a New Zealander has no trouble with it at all. And you know- right. My my mother's Welsh, but my father's not. So my father calls me Sean. Right. <laughs> my mother, mother calls me Sean. Sean, <laughs> like, is that better? It, it's yeah, Sean. That's that's it. Sean. Okay. And I just I just kind of go. I answer to well, with a name spelled like mine, you answer to just about anything. I bet. <laughs> the double L. So the double L is um, when people try to tell people how to pronounce it. They often say that you put the tip of your tongue up behind your front teeth, and then you kind of hiss an L out from under both sides of your tongue. Okay. <laughs> but to hear it, so so one of the one of the most common uses you'll see of it in Wales is in place names that start with llan. Okay. Which is one of the, uh, there are two Welsh words for church and that's one of them. Yeah. So some of our, so, so the double L sound is that the, the double D would be a soft TH sound. In That's English? right. Yep. So the name, um, David in Welsh is Davis. D-A-F-Y-D-D. Okay. And so the F is a V sound. One Usually. F is a V sound. If you want to make an F sound, you use two Fs. Okay. My mom is from the South, which is usually described as being less Welshy than the right. North, but she was a native Welsh speaker uh, and it still is obviously. And it's <laughs> it's her first language. And the W is an O vowel? Um, yeah, mostly, I mean, okay. w, W's vowel um, right. and it serves different functions depending on where you find it, but yeah. All right, well, so can you crash through some of the terms and the names we're going to be using just so that I, I get can, them? I can fake right? it. 
<laughs> if there's an actual Welsh speaker out there, I could be in trouble. But if it's just between you and me. <laughs> okay, well, if there's a Welsh speaker in this class, we'd ask you to post on the discussion board how you really Absolutely. need us to pronounce them. I will but... also say that there are actually genuine dialectal differences between North and South Welsh. And, okay. and South Welsh is what I grew up around. Right. Okay. So I would pronounce um, the first text, E Gadodhan. A Gadodhan. I, I wouldn't say E. I would go, I would make it more like an A. Uh. A Gadodhan. Gadodhan. Okay. Yep. That's fine. And what about the spoils one? That's Anun? Well, Anun? now uh, there's a whole story there. So <laughs> no. there are two variations on the t- uh, on both words in the title. So okay. some people say Prizi for the first okay. word spoils some people say pry the eye pry the eye okay and for the place it's either anun okay but it also exists as anuvan ah with a single f so it's either pry the anun or pry the eye anuvan okay and which would you say I don't know, whatever takes my... I, I almost always say Anuvan just because I find it easier to say than Anun. Okay. Um, so, I, so I would probably mix it up. It'd probably be something like Praidi Anuvan. Praidi Anuvan. Okay. And what about Kolhuch and Olwen? Oh, oh that's yeah. the other one. It's the CH is a soft lock sound, right? It is, yeah. So okay. so um, probably not so much Kol as Kol. So Kolhuch. Kolhuch. Okay. Kaluch ak olwen. Kaluch ak olwen. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so the fun with pronunciation. Um, we're using your translations of agadoden. Did I get that right? Yeah. Agadoden and spoils. So um, aside from the problems with English speakers of mangling the pronunciations, could you talk a little bit about the problems that come with translation and interpretation sure. and, and so on, especially for these texts? I yeah, guess. well, particularly for those two, because they're so old. So right. um, to start with the Gadoven, it probably, the the events that it's describing are probably somewhere around 600. Okay. But the manuscript that it survives in is many centuries later. It survives in a manuscript um, that's called uh, the Book of Anairin. Okay. And it dates to about 1260. So right. hundreds and hundreds of years later. So that's one problem. One of the, there, there are two reasons that we think that the text is much, much, much older than that. And one is, of course, that it's describing events that are probably around 600. Okay. Uh, could even be earlier. But the other is that there's actually two versions of the poem in the manuscript and one scribe uses what seem to be much older forms of some of the words. So in other words, although it was written down hundreds and hundreds of years later, it partially preserves very old forms of Welsh. So by the time that the manuscript is written, the kind of Welsh that's being written is called Middle Welsh, just okay. like just like Middle English in in you know, Chaucer's language, but it preserves at least some forms of old Welsh. The thing is there's very little surviving from Welsh. That's that old, very little. And so often we just don't actually know what some of the words mean. 
Right. And there's also an argument, uh, scholars argue about whether some parts of the poem are later interpolations. People argue over what individual words mean. They even argue over things like what's actually being described. So that in the Gadogan, there's a, a, a person, we think, who keeps getting mentioned over and over and over again. But there's one scholar who says, no, that's not actually a person. That's a description. Of, okay. of a court it doesn't mean you know so and so so and so it means the mountain court right so so you know when you're having that level of disagreement right <laughs> it can be very hard to translate right um the other reason it's hard to translate is that it's uh intricate poetry it um has a lot of it has alliteration it has internal rhyme as welsh develops welsh poetry becomes very complex right and even even the early stuff has a lot of kind of what you might think of as poetical formal fireworks so that's hard too so it's not a shopping list it's poetry which itself is meant to be more complicated and obscure and yes and 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 i mean display right Right. kind of show-offy then the then um, Praedia Novan is not quite as old as the Gadovan, but it has a very similar sort of situation in that it's quite old. There's still some argument over just how old it is. Um, a, a pretty broad range might be ninth century, um, but again, it only exists in a 14th century, in, in its case, a 14th century manuscript. Um, it may also have bits and pieces of older, perhaps only half remembered lore with overlays of other things. Cause there are some elements of the way that it's structured that some scholars think are meant to suggest, uh, biblical analogs and things like that. Right. So again, what you have is a sort of a, um, almost like a palimpsest. Okay. And um, this would have come out of, I mean, would they be have been written down and then copied or would this be more of an oral tradition? Probably or a oral. Bit of both? Uh, okay. I, I mean, there, there are not very many very, very old Welsh manuscripts. Right. Like the, so the common way of talking about the oldest Welsh, Welsh manuscripts is to refer to the four ancient books of Wales. And those four books are um, in English, uh, the Black Book of Carmarthen, uh, the Book of Taliesin, the Book of Anairin, and the Red Book of Hergest. Okay. And the earliest of those is uh, 13th century. Wow. So, as, as you can tell, obviously not, um, not in close contact with these very early texts but right. that's those are the those are the manuscripts that deliver the oldest welsh texts to us okay great so what do you make of these early references to arthur i mean so we don't have any near contemporary i mean they're all 500 years at least out of when we think he might have probably existed yeah did people make up these stories out of whole cloth or is there any i mean there's david dumfield says there is categorically no historical evidence for arthur 
depends on what you des- what you describe as historical. Right. Um, I mean, certainly. So the earliest references. So the very earliest potential reference would be the mention in the Gadothan. Right. So there's that single line in the poem. So the, so the Gadothan is just this series, as you know, of, of elegies commemorating uh, Welsh, well, at this point, British warriors right. who rode out from their stronghold in Din Aiden, which is Edinburgh, um, in an attempt, which was unsuccessful, to take back from the invading Saxons a place called Catraith, which is probably Catterick in Yorkshire. Right. And it's just a series of elegies for the men who fell. And one of the elegies contains one line that translates as, he fed black ravens on the wall of the fort, although he was not Arthur. In other words, he killed lots of people because ravens are are carrion birds. So so it appears to be saying this was a great warrior. Um, He wasn't Arthur, but he was a great warrior. And if we assume that this was first written down around 600, then that is a an almost contemporary reference right which suggests that there was somebody called arthur who was famous some people have said that it might be one of the later interpolations in the poem but it's necessary for the rhyme so maybe not interesting right um then there are some latin references uh gildas and bead both refer to the struggles between the native Britons and the invading Saxons, um, but they don't name Arthur. Right. Then there's a couple more Latin references, which are early, but not, not the year 600. So there's um, a text called the Historia Britonum, which right. used to be attributed to a guy called Menius. Yeah. And it's ninth century ish. It, one of the sections is a so-called mirabilia section. So um, a, about, it's almost like a travelogue, interesting places. <laughs> a tourist trap. It's a tourist thing. trap. And one of the things yeah. it talks about is a miraculous cairn of stones called Karn Kafal. And it says, uh, and the thing that's miraculous about it is that if you take a stone off the car, uh, off the pile and take it away, it'll be back there the next day. Interesting. And okay. uh, that one, is, it bears the imprint of the foot of Arthur's dog, Kaval, right. which, who's the dog that Arthur took with him when he hunted the boar, uh, Turith. And that boar hunt is described in Kulkanolwan. Right. And then the other one is a grave. Uh, that's the grave of Amir, who's described as Arthur's son. And it says that Arthur killed him. And the grave is miraculous because it's never the same size. Every time you measure it, it's different sizes. So those, again, those are not, there's, there's no narrative there. All there is, is the sense that there's this name floating around. And that people would have known the name. Right. And then elsewhere in the Historia Britonum, there is a description of the battles, the back and forth battles between um, the British and the Saxons. And it says that Arthur was the Dux Bellorum, which literally means leader of battles of the British in those battles. And there's a little bit of elaboration that says he fought 12 battles 
and uh, his most famous battle is the Battle of Mount Baden. So by the time you get to the year 900 or so, there's 12 battles, there's the idea that there's a famous warrior, um, but none of that is historical if what you mean is, you know, we can dig him up and here he is. Right, or eyewitness accounts. To no, that. no. Yeah. But I mean, I think the general consensus is, the thing that is historical fact is that Germanic tribes um, invaded Britain in the fifth and sixth centuries. Right. And another fact is that the British were pushed into the sort of more defensible areas of the island. So, so, so there was a historical period, which is reflected in these stories what some people think is that gradually what happens is that a, a whole bunch of different hero accounts attach to one person and coalesce into this figure. Okay. But you know, you're not, you, you, you people always think they found the smoking gun and the most popular thing has been to try to connect Arthur to the, um, Romanized Britain. I mean, there are there are physical places that have been associated with Arthur. There's a place called Cadbury Castle, which isn't a castle; it's a it's a hill fort, right? And uh, excavations there have suggested a sort of fifth, sixth century, um, you know, a great hall and associated buildings of the sort that would make it an appropriate base, right, for a war leader like Arthur. Right. And wasn't there Tintagel as well that they've discovered that it had trading with the Mediterranean? Yeah. Well, Tintagel is, is interesting because Tintagel doesn't come to be associated with Arthur in texts until we get to Geoffrey of Monmouth in the 12th right. century. Um, but there was a, a Celtic monastery at Tintagel in the 5th, 6th century, it seems. And then a few years ago, I guess it might be a while ago now, there was a brief... Uh, kerfuffle because archaeologists from the University of Glasgow found uh, something that was a it was a drain pipe cover or a tile of some sort and it had the name Artogmu written on it. Yeah. And everybody was like, oh my gosh, it's a smoking gun. It's proof that there really was an Arthur at Tintagel and that this, you know, because yeah. the, the story goes, Jeffrey wouldn't have made it up out of whole cloth. He would have been working with some local tradition. Here's proof of the local tradition. But what the people at Glasgow were saying is like, no, no, I mean, don't be silly. But what's really interesting is all of this Mediterranean glassware. You know? Right. Yeah. So this was an important place, but not necessarily. But not for not for the reasons you think. Exactly. Right. It wasn't necessarily linked to Arthur. Right funny so yeah so you you would come down you would say that there probably were great leaders they've all come together into one and yeah. then just like a rock rolling down a hill or something or a snowball rolling down a hill they collect all these stories around them sure and I mean one of them might even have been called Arthur you know? right right yeah I mean it's hard to think that there was no such person of Arthur that someone just made up because why? What would be the point of making up someone whose name nobody knew, right? That and that's why when that's why people are particularly excited by that reference in the Godavan, because yeah. it's sort of like calling somebody Elvis, you know? Right, it implies right. that everybody knows who this person is. If you yeah. say, you know, he was a great warrior like Arthur, right? Yeah, great. 
So turning to Kalukh then, um, mm-hmm. okay, I admit, I feel, to me, this feels like a story told by my eight-year-old son. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's crazy. There are characters all over the place with crazy names, and there's plot threads that never go anywhere, and people doing things for no apparent reason. Yeah. So is this unusual for Welsh texts, or are all okay. Welsh texts so, like this? Or? Well, funny you should ask. Um, <laughs> okay. So some years ago, when I was teaching my uh, Arthurian class, I had um, one of my PhD students was my TA, and he was he was from Virginia, so he had this fantastic accent, and he was a specialist in in the Welsh stuff. So I asked him to do the introductory lecture, and the first thing he, did, he stood up and he said, "Now the thing about Welsh is, it's really weird." <laughs> And he sort of went on from there. Um, it is, so I, so there are theories about Kulluk and we can come back to that. But okay. in general, it's true that the oldest Welsh stuff, prose or, prose or poetry, because it seems to preserve very old materials and maybe some of it is prompts for further storytelling in an oral context, right. it can seem extremely, extremely cryptic. Right. Um, so, and I mean, linear cause and effect matters much less in oral storytelling. Yeah, I think. Well, I mean, if especially if you're thinking about it as an interactive situation. In other words, right. so so one of the most popular um, surviving forms of Welsh uh, poetry are the so-called triads, and as their name suggests, they're simply lists of three. So they're things like three great kings of the island of Britain. And then there might be a little tiny bit of detail about each one, three great queens of the island of Britain, three great plagues of the island of Britain. And some people think that those are intended to kind of prompt further storytelling. So a storyteller is telling a story and then says, he was one of the three great kings of the island of Britain. And the audience says, tell us about the other two, you know? Right. Um, it's also, of course, mnemonic, like it's a way of, it's a short form way of preserving what might have been much longer stories. Right. And so some of the most famous Welsh prose tales are the so-called four branches of the Mabinogi. And some people think that those are really just sort of the surviving skeleton of much of a much bigger epic hero, um, cycle that this is what's left. Right. But, but that in fact, it might have been intended as a kind of a framework for somebody who was telling something much bigger, you know? Right. So, so that can definitely give the impression of that can contribute to that impression of strangeness. But the thing about some of it, as, especially as you go further into the middle Welsh period, you get texts which are very clearly self-conscious of the literary aspect of their production. That is, they're conscious that they're being written down and that they're responding to existing um, traditions. And so a lot of the argument about Killock has been whether that list of heroes, which is like, I don't know, hundreds of names. Yeah, like um, four pages or six pages. like, Like what is, what's with that? Yeah. And the, so the old school folklorist anthropologist view used to be, well, this is a classic mnemonic list like you find in all sorts of oral epic poetry. Right. Like the lists of trees in epic Greek poetry, that kind of stuff. 
But if you actually start reading the names, some of the names are are known. You know, they're they're heroic characters from across Welsh tradition. Some right. of them are completely unknown, and some of them are ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, they're like funny. Suction, son of pump. Right. You know, so some people think it's parody. Right. That it, that it's making fun of that particular um, tradition. Right. And as for the the list of tasks, I mean, again, that has a folktale root. Like the whole the whole story is a version of. Um, what's often called the giant's daughter. So there was a vogue in the middle of the 20th century for labeling, um, for collecting, collecting and categorizing folktales. Yeah. And, you know, across cultures. And so this is, uh, Kuluk is basically the giant's daughter. And then it has a whole bunch of other familiar folktale motifs, like the helping animals, the oldest animals, that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but again, it seems to be an, a very extreme version because there's <laughs> so many tasks yes. and you will have noticed that they don't really do most of them. No, they do about seven or so. And then, you know, what the heck, off we go, kill is begotten and we're done. Right. Um, and again, there's argument as to... I mean, is this somebody poking fun at the whole system or is this somebody who's not very good at what he or he's doing? Or is this, or is this a partial text? And is it a partial text other? or is it a catalog? Again, is it a catalog of something that was meant to be way bigger? Don't know. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, there's even argument over whether Killick is pre or post conquest. Interesting. Okay. And so some of these stories, like I think the story of Arthur killing and I, the tour, tour, did I say yep, it? Yep, yep. Uh, that shows up elsewhere, right? Yeah. Well, as I said, the reference, the reference in the Historia Britonum uh, to right. Arthur hunting the boar is, is to that. And the, the idea of the boar hunt is a pretty old one. Right. And so that story, so they, it could well be referring to other stories that yes, we've lost. Exactly. That's right. Right. Okay. And the, you know, you mentioned the wise old animals trope. I mean, maybe I know it from there, but the wise old salmon is a stock figure of a lot of this poetry, right? That's right. Yeah. And, um, and prose and, and I mean the whole, the whole motif of animal guides is another of those really common features um, of all, all kinds of medieval romance, including, including Welsh romance and pre-romance, you know, epic texts as well. So it used to be that people read these texts looking, treating them almost archaeologically. What they were trying to do was find the oldest motifs. And so they sort of ignored the literary achievements of them, partly because they had a kind of a almost knee-jerk sense that they were somehow primitive and and what what was interesting about them was the base layer of the oldest motif motifs of myth that was challenged probably from sort of the mid-70s on by people who pointed out just how much literary craft there is in both the poetry and the prose and what a and that many of the ideas about the texts we're taking a view of an oral tradition that was um, treating it as if it were not sophisticated. Right. 
And they were pointing out that this is was highly sophisticated, complex, not naive in any way. So um, those kinds of, a lot of the arguments about the Mabinogi, for instance, now, instead of being interested in whether this is actually the hero cycle of the hero prittery, um, are interested in whether they were written down by legal scholars who were trying to kind of create accessible frameworks hmm. to introduce various concepts about governance. Right. So, you know, there's been there's been a, a real shift in the scholarship on many of these texts, but people still argue about how old they are, what they mean, even what even in the case of the poems we started with, even the words, even what they right. say. So part of my problem, like what's with all the haircutting? It kind of seems anticlimactic that you can be offered anything in the world and you ask for a haircut. <laughs> I mean, I know it goes back to you know, service and leadership and um, cutting someone's beard is a metaphor for cutting their strength or not a metaphor, but a... It's an actual, yeah, it's, yeah. No, it's, it's exactly. Um, hair is this, hair, hair is weird. Yeah. I mean, it also goes back to Samson in the Bible, right? Sure it does. And, and also if you think about, um, think of the Carolingian kings, the uh, Rex, the Reges Criniti or whatever, they were, they were known for their hair. Right. I mean, there's a reason they called Louis the Bald, Louis the Bald. You weren't supposed to be bald <laughs> if you were a Carolingian king, right? If you were manly and, yeah. No, charisma was, was um, which literally sort of was understood as a sign of the right to rule. Right. Uh, it was invested in hair. Huh, right? I didn't know that. Yeah. And hair, hair was, because it's manly, you know. Right. Yeah. Um, that was the idea. And yeah, the haircut thing, I don't know. It's, it's, <laughs> I, I, it's just weird. And I love I love the bit where they have to prop up Isbazadin's eyelids with like forks. with a fork. Yes, that's yeah. just that's just strange. No, that's and that's why I mean I can see why some people think it's parody, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's really hard, right? Because it's hard to know whether we are imposing modern ideas on these texts because yeah. I mean there's many ways in which a lot of um many of them are unfinished right most of them we have no idea who the author actually was they're they're, they're postmodern in lots of kinds of ways and right. they also seem to function through juxtaposition and discontinuity yeah um but is saying that every bit as anachronistic as it was for the anthropologists of the late 19th early 20th centuries who only wanted them to be fragmentary remnants of oral tradition and not literary texts in their own right. right. You know, it's hard to know. Yeah. And it's hard to know too, like whether you're being patronizing or yep. upholding, you know, the, yeah. Cause they might look at our novels and think, I feel like I'm being hit over the head with explanations all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a great, there's a great parodic uh, middle Welsh story about Arthur called uh, the dream of Renabli. And it's clearly, um, it, it's set in a recognizable historical Welsh period during a period of civil strife because the Welsh were always fighting with each other. And there's this character called Ronabwy who falls asleep and he has a vision. And the vision he sees is Arthur and his troops preparing for the Battle of Mount Baden, which was Arthur's most famous victory. But Arthur is playing Gwifbwch, which is a game, um, with... Kai, 
and and chaos is ensuing in the background and these guys are playing a board game and every and there's endless descriptions of how incredibly fancy everyone looks and eventually Ronabui wakes up and it's all very strange but it ends with a little colophon that says um you know this 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 is a true story nobody else can tell this story because nobody else has access to all of these aspects of the book right and that's a trope that Geoffrey of Monmouth, when he writes his history of the Kings of Britain, when he finishes, he claims that he's translating a very ancient book in the British tongue. Yeah. And at the end, he says, you know, I'll leave it to my contemporaries to write about contemporary kings, um, but none of them should write about what I've written about because they don't have the very ancient book in the British tongue. So this is what I mean when I say that by the time you get to the 12th, the 13th century, there's a kind of bookishness right. in a lot of the text that's, that's very self-conscious about um, the difference between oral tradition and written tradition, the status of writing. With somebody like Jeffrey, I'm always, I, I figure he's always untrustworthy and he's, he's making <laughs> fun in a 3,000 different ways. Right. But it's not as if we're dealing, in other words, with people who who were, you know, living in caves and uh, thinking that the world was a strange and bizarre place and everybody was very primitive and couldn't string a sentence together. Yeah, though they're you very know, sophisticated. This is clearly not what we're talking about. Yeah. But it used to be that that's how those texts were treated. Right. Well, and I mean, Mallory, you can tell whenever he mentioned the, the French book and his sources that he's making stuff up. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't believe for a minute that Geoffrey of Monmouth had a very ancient book in the British tongue. Right. But I believe that he did have access to all of these stories. Yes. He's the first guy to give us a coherent, consistent narrative narrative about Arthur. But he's clearly drawing on material that he would have had access to. Yeah. Just not like one book. Welsh material. No, just not one book. Exactly. And I think he, I think he's almost using the book as a metaphor. Um, although the other interesting thing about Jeffrey is that he says in his preface at the beginning that he was surprised that there were no books about the kings of the British before, um, before the Saxons, because he was aware that their stories had been passed down in, you know, most intricate oral tradition. Right. And so why didn't someone get around yeah. to writing them down. But it's pretty unusual for a Latinate cleric like Geoffrey of Monmouth to right. speak respectfully of oral tradition. Huh. So that's another reason to think that he, he might well have simply been drawing on oral tradition that he was familiar with. And then he creates this fiction of the, of the very ancient British book. Although there are there's always people who believe it really existed. Right. So hard to know. Wouldn't it be fun to find? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> You wouldn't have to do anything else forever. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, so, I mean, I guess my last question would be that, that this is a very funny, it's it's a great tale, it's, it's this wild adventure story and so on, but it's very violent. I mean, the, Arthur says, or no, that, not Arthur, but the, the king um, says that he chose to marry someone and that person that happens to be already married, so they just go and kill his husband now this is a little bit biblical again but would the first audience have experienced violence in the same way as we do that's a really good question i mean i can say that um 
there's plenty of violence in the poetry. So if you read all the way through the Gadogan, it's a celebration of um, swords and shields and cutting martial down violence people and... like leeks and things like that. Martial violence, exactly. Yeah. Um, and there's also all kinds of surprising and strange violence in the prose stories. Um, there's there there are often consequences. So, it, famously, in one of the branches of the Mabinogi, um, there's a a ruler who can only rest his feet in the lap of a virgin, just because. And so these <laughs> two these two guys uh, rape his virgin, which makes him very upset, as you can imagine. Yes, um, but. So, but they're punished. Um, they're punished actually by being turned into animals, uh, a right. boy and a girl of each one. And they go off and they breed with each other and they come back once a year and get trained tra into different animals and their sexes get switched again and they breed again. Right. It, in in other words, there, there are, there are violent acts, but there are consequences for violent acts. It's right. not just kind of random written off. Gratuitous and there's, violence. and there, well, I mean, there is a lot of, but feel I guess so, yeah. gratuitous but I mean compared to you know Mallory with like arms and legs <laughs> and livers and things you know and guts gu gushing on the floor and blood up to the fetlocks there's maybe not as much I guess so <laughs> I, I don't know <laughs> so <laughs> yeah but yeah they, they can they can be they can be pretty gory and how they would have been experienced I mean that's that's the question right yeah um there's not a lot of interior life in these texts. No. Right? So, and and famously, people used to think it was because these people didn't have any interior life. Or that's right. Yeah. It was yeah the, the the whole idea of personhood was in a later invention. Well, I think by Shakespeare. Probably not. It was invented yeah, by Shakespeare. Everything was invented by Shakespeare. Yes, but yeah, they probably did have this, but whether they they just either expected us to fill it in, or they weren't interested in it, or they did it in a different way. Well, there are there are many um, Welsh lament poems, for example, right. that you know that are often in the voice of someone who has lost someone. They're very similar, the Welsh elegies to the old English elegies, like the Wanderer, the Seafarer, okay. those kinds of things. Um, same kind of first person lamenting voice, right? But those don't come into the narrative much. No, no, no. There's very little. Uh, there's very little in the narratives that you could call interior i mean if you think about Colic and olin like technically i suppose it's a love story but you know they seem to agree on getting together without really much fuss well Colic <laughs> actually does fall in love with her but that seems to be more of the challenge that he's falling in love with rather than like near the very beginning of the story as soon as he gets cursed by his stepmother to say you will not marry anyone else he has this love for her kind of blossom in him and then they don't actually sit together and chat or anything. No. Well, he, I mean, he does have to marry her, right? It's, it's right. the way it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, this has been a real pleasure, Sean. Thank you. No, or no how, how should I too. say it? I'm saying it, Sean. Is that better? That's that's fine. <laughs> and thank and, you in Welsh is Dioch. Ah, Dioch. Or if you very want to say thank you very much, Diochenbar. Diochenbar. You've been listening to Eavesdropping on Arthurians with Kathy Causey. 
Join me next time to eavesdrop on another chat about a different but equally fascinating story about Arthur. Our music is Mordred's Lullaby by Heather Dale. You can download it for free from heatherdale.com.